We're looking at Numbers chapter 19, uh, and we're going to read the whole chapter this morning. So let me alert you to uh, a couple of things about this chapter before I read it to you. The first thing is that the first 10 verses of this chapter are about a red heifer. Uh, If you've never heard about the red heifer before, this afternoon, when you're looking for something to do, Google red heifer. And what you will see is that there are farms all over the nation of Israel who are trying to raise the perfect red heifer. You think I'm kidding. This is what I get paid to do. And so, uh, trust me, they are on the lookout for the perfect red heifer because if they find the perfect red heifer, it'll bring the world to an end. Okay? There are sects out there that actually believe that. So, as we'll see, the red heifer is a big deal here. We've already read about it from, the, uh, uh, from, from Hebrews, right? When it talked about the, uh, the ashes of a heifer. Well, this is what it, that's talking about. <clears throat> and then the second half, verses 11 through 22, is going to seem like the most alien thing ever because uh, it's about touching dead things. Uh, something that uh, is tough for us to think very much about because our culture is death-denying. Right, and so uh, we'll spend we'll spend some time talking about what uh, what's going on there and why that's important and uh, why this is uh, uh, a valuable chapter and what this says to us about how uh, we lead our lives. So let me read to you Numbers uh, chapter nineteen verses one through twenty-two. <clears throat> Text is in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me. Uh, this is the word of God, and we should hear it. And respond to it as such this morning. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel 
that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus, on the seventh day, he shall cleanse him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and at evening shall be clean. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he's unclean. And it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Wow. So, quite a text, quite a picture, quite a, a, an understanding, and uh, I'm sure for most of you, you thought, what does this have to do with anything, right? Uh, what does this certainly have to do with anything in my life? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, it has everything to do with it. And this is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And you'll see why. Now, first, before we get to that, we need to answer the question, why is it, and if you've been re following along with us at all over the last few months about in the book of Numbers, why is there so much talk in the book of Numbers about what to do with dead things? <laughs> you know, doesn't it seem like, didn't it, it's, I mean, we don't do that. That's, you know, like I said, we're a death-denying culture, right? When, when somebody we know and we love dies, what happens is, is the funeral home comes, picks them up, uh, pretties them up, puts them in a, a casket that you purchase and, and makes them look good, and then you bury them. Did you know that there's a thing, an actual thing called casketing? Did you know that's a verb? That you can casket someone? Don't you think that's funny? I think that's hilarious. It's, but it's expensive. It's not so funny. Where do you see the bill for that when you have to casket someone? So, so we don't uh, that's, this is such a, to have this much emphasis on this is just seems so alien to us, right? But we experience death very differently than people did even just 150 years ago. It used to be, now bear with me in this. This is worth thinking about. It used to be that when you died, your family picked you up, probably put you on the kitchen table, cleaned you up, dressed you up, put you in a box, and then put you in a hole in the ground. Now, we hear that and we think, I can't think of anything any worse than that. But you know what? Won't we, don't we talk about loving someone to the end? That's loving someone to the end, isn't it? Honestly, it is. Now, now you know, we, we, we hear that and, you, and I'm sure many of you are thinking, especially if you're visiting this morning, you're thinking, what in the world have I stumbled into? Red heifers and touching dead people, right? Putting them on the kitchen table? you got to be kidding me. Well, that's the way it used to be. Up until the Civil War, almost everybody in America died at home. And there wasn't anything about embalming or any of that business until the Civil War happened when 700,000 of us 
died somewhere other than home. Okay? So, so the, we experienced death very differently than people did just 150 years ago. So you can imagine what it was like a few thousand years ago, right? Uh, secondly, the thing to note about this is there's a lot of dying going on in this camp. Uh, and that's kind of the point, right? Because we know that this whole generation has to die before they can get on with the program to get to the, to the promised land. And we know that sometimes God speeds that up, right? Occasionally the ground opens up and swallows the rebels. A plague comes through the camp, move this process along, right? I mean, let's be honest about that. That's, that's what needs to happen. And so, so if you do the math about the, the hundreds of thousands of people who are in the camp and you divide that by 40 years, over time, there's a lot of people dying, okay? That's just the way it is, okay? So you got to do something about that. And I would imagine, especially as the years went on, that this became a bigger and bigger issue of what they were going to do. And let's, let's be clear, you know, when you're in a camp and you're outside and you're doing this, um, there's probably some issues that are important to think about uh, how you clean this stuff up, right? Um, thirdly, uh, the people of God are surrounded by all sorts of pagan and even evil rituals surrounding the dead. Uh, where did they just come from? Egypt. What do you know about Egypt? You know, you know, you know what they did in Egypt, right? That was a whole thing, a cult around the dead, uh, around the dead and, and packing stuff away with them and the, the, uh, mummifying them and, um, even their cats. You know, a culture sick that mummifies cats, right? <laughs> Anyway, that's sorry about that editorial comment, but uh, yeah, it's just so bizarre, right? So they they did all kinds of things like that. They gave them food to to take with them into the underworld and and all of that, right? So so the fact is, part of what God's doing here is He's trying to get them to understand what death really is and and what must be done about it, right? As opposed to the way all these cultures around them are dealing with it. Um, and then lastly, every time some one of them dies in the wilderness, it is a reminder of their sin as it is for us. Every time one of those people, that generation, died, it reminded them that that happened, that they weren't to the promised land, and that they died in the wilderness because of their rebellion. And so it was an opportunity to be sobered up a little bit about the reality of what what of, of, of what happens here? You see, the fact is, we we kind of um, I don't know uh, the way we think about death is that uh, it's we try to make our peace with it and we try to make something normal out of it. When the fact of the matter is, the witness of the scripture is death is not normal. Listen, listen. I want you to hear this. Right? There would be no death if there were no sin. Period. Right. So the, so the fact of the matter is that, that, that this is a reminder to us every time someone dies and every time one of these people dies, it reminds us that the world is not as it should be. And in fact, uh, sin uh, is running rampant through our world and that uh, something needs to happen. But that's not the only thing. The other thing about it is the, the reality is every time someone died, there's also the picture here, even for these people, that, that of hope. That oddly enough, they are moving closer and closer to the day where God will fulfill his promise and all of his people 
will be uh, in the promised land, right? And so that's, that's part of what's going on here when we think about this. So, so you have to, as you, as you think about this, and don't be put off by the fact that all of this, there's all this talk about touching dead things and, and that kind of stuff, because it was a big part of what was going on. In fact, it was kind of their project in many ways uh, as they're preparing to go uh, to, the, to, the, to the promised land. So wrap your brain around that. We'll revisit this in just a minute. Uh, the other thing to note is, uh, let's talk about the red heifer, right? So um, you, you, you may think this is such an odd thing out of the, the middle of this text uh, where we've been talking about the people's rebellion and then God's instructions to the priests and, and all of that. Suddenly now, out of the blue, we have this instruction about a red heifer. Now, if you, if, with a cursory reading of the Bible, you may think, well, the red heifer is no different from any of the other animals that are sacrificed. This is unique. You know, there are goats and rams and lambs and bulls, all of that kind of stuff. But this, this animal is unique, right? And, and there's some unique things about this particular sin offering uh, that set it apart from all the other offerings that are made. First of all, it's unblemished. Now, what, is, what does that mean? That means that as far as you can tell and as far as you can know, this animal had no physical defects, right? Uh, it looks exactly the way a red heifer is supposed to look. Now, um, and, and it's never to have been used to like pull a plow or a wagon or anything like that. Now, some of you, I know, watch regularly the, uh, like the, um, the Westminster Kennel Club dog show. You ever watch that? I, I, we 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 watch that at our house because uh, it you know there's typically not good sports on when that's on so we'll we'll watch the Westminster Kennel Club and uh, the thing that I can't get over about that is is I look at it and I'm like that's a really cute dog I'd like to have a dog like that I like that dog and then they bring out these dogs that are like who who would take that dog <laughs> that is. That is one ugly dog. And sometimes that one ugly dog wins because it's an ugly dog. And it's supposed to be an ugly dog, right? And so it, it exemplifies ugly dog better than any of the other ugly dogs that are bred like that, right? So when you look at that ugly dog, you can tell that, oh, that's an ugly dog. That's a perfect ugly dog, right? So, so, the, so the fact is, what's, what's happening here is, out of all the, the red heifers, uh, uh, and heifer is, is just a word for a female uh, cow, here's, here's one that's the right size, perfect, no blemishes, no difficulties, anything like that, never been, uh, um, never uh, had a yoke on it, anything like that, right? So it's a perfect uh, physical specimen, unblemished. Secondly, the other thing that's unique about this, all the other sacrifices, and there are so many sacrifices, right, in, in the Old Testament. This is the one sacrifice that the effect of the sacrifice is ongoing. That's the whole point where, where they take the ashes, right? And they, they, I mean, it's not just that they kill this thing. They kill it, and they burn it, and they burn it, and they burn it until it's down to nothing but ashes, and they scoop those ashes up and they put them in a jar and they use those ashes until they're done with them, until they run out of them for ongoing cleaning, 
right? For, for cleansing people who've touched dead things or for cleaning uh, uh, tents where, where people have died or, or that sort of thing. So, so the effect of that sacrifice goes on and on and on and on. Now, a, a thing to note about this is red is all over this, right? It's a red heifer. You throw some red yarn in it. You use red wood, cedar, right, to, to, to burn it. So, so why would red be such a big part of this? What's red? Blood. Exactly, right? So that's the thing that God's communicating here, right? That what's important about this is, in, in this sacrifice, that blood is spilled. But not only that, every bit of this animal, every single bit of it is gathered up and burned. It has its own holocaust, right? I mean, it is slaughtered and it is burnt until there's nothing left but ashes. But those ashes are mixed with water and used ritually to clean people up, to make them acceptable. And that's, 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 a, a, that's a really important part of this because the, the fact is that um, without being ritually clean, you can't be in the people of God. Without being ritually clean, you can't worship, right? So, so this is something that, that, that really, really uh, matters. Now, what's interesting is, is that only clean, clean persons can administer the cleansing. So only people who are already ritually clean can take the ashes, mix them with the water, and, and dab them on what needs to be ritually cleaned up. That's important to note. But ironically... The process of decontamination actually contaminates. Did you catch that when you read this? So, so by doing what you're supposed to do, which is take the red heifer, kill it, burn it up, take the ashes, gather them up, put them in a jar, do that. That process that God tells you to do to get to cleaning makes you, the person who does it, unclean. That seems unfair. Right? Then, then that, that I mean that that seems that seems a little a, a little odd to me, right? But it's consistent, and and it's clear that that, that God is communicating something uh, uh, here. So the contaminated ones can't worship until they're cleansed, and so so there's some some pretty powerful things that that we should begin to to see about this because what this should say to you and what this should uh, say to me uh, is um, Jesus is a red heifer. The perfect red heifer. But even better than this, next slide, please. Uh, uh, Unlike all these other sacrifices, this one's done outside the camp, just as Jesus was killed outside the city. But the unique thing about this sacrifice is, is that, as we've read from Hebrews, the perfect red heifer could make you ceremonially clean and make you ritually clean and enable you to be brought uh, into the tabernacle and as a part of the people of God, but it couldn't do anything about what's going on in here. It can't cleanse your conscience. But the blood of Jesus can do that, Right? So, so one of the things that is profound about this is, is that we have this perfect uh, Jesus Christ, who's our, our, the perfect uh, red heifer, who has no blemishes, who has no issues, has, 
is spiritually, morally, uh, holy, perfect, complete, and, and, and fully obeys the law, tempted in all ways like us, and yet without sin. But what's even more amazing about that is the very fact that he becomes the red heifer for us, he becomes contaminated. Right? He becomes contaminated. He has to absorb our sin, our filth, our death uh, to make himself, uh, to make us clean, to make us acceptable, right? So, so the, it's a pretty profound thing for us to think about this because uh, that God would use this uh, centuries, millennia before Jesus got here to say, to be on the lookout. We don't need a red heifer today. We've already had ours. It's Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. And this is the question. What does this say about us? Because, frankly, I tell you every week in words one way or another that Jesus is the red heifer for you. I tell you that every week. Uh, I tell myself that every week, right? Uh, It's a profound message. Uh, But for many of us, and for most of us, it's something that slides off our consciences and off our hearts, right? So let's dig into this a little bit. What does this say about us? Well, what this says about us, first of all, is our identity. We are the people for whom Jesus Christ died. That's our identity. That's who we are. That's who and what the church is. That's us. Okay? So whatever else may be true, whatever else we may do, whatever else we may believe, whatever else we may be involved in, as valuable and as important as those things are, they are fluff and nonsense compared to this. Because this is the thing. This is it. This is why we're here. This is why uh, the, the work, this is the point. Right? That Jesus Christ stepped into our world, perfect, died our death, rose again, lived our life for us that we could never live. And so now we are perpetually, eternally cleansed by his blood. In and out. That's the thing. Now, that's, that's, that is so important. In fact, in truth, Nothing else we do, nothing else we say is as important to that. Now, I'm not saying that nothing else, you know, nothing else is important. There's lots of important things that the church is about. But we cease to be the people of God. We cease to have the identity of of the people of God if we lose that. That we are the people for whom Christ died. Second, so if that's true of us, if that's our identity, what's our posture? Because if we are the people for whom Christ died, what does that say about us? We are the people for whom Christ had to die. Okay? So that that tells me something about my posture towards myself, towards my God, and towards other people. What is true of me is that it it was an absolute necessity that Jesus be taken outside of the camp and slaughtered for me. So that changes 
the way I approach life. That changes the way I look at my life. That changes the way I look at other people. Changes the way I, I look at my enemies. Changes the way I look at my friends, right? That is, that, that reorients my posture. So, so instead of being the answer man and the critic man in the world today, I am the man who knows that Jesus died for me and I have, praise God, I have that, right? So that changes my posture. Thirdly, this is our message. Whatever else may be true about the people of God, this is what we proclaim. And we proclaim it in everything that we do. If we are involved and engaged in any kind of work or activity wherein we are not clear that we are doing this in the name of the one who was slain for us, and and we are not clear that we are doing this because Jesus Christ is for us, that he died for us, and we are his people, and we needed him to do that for us, and you need him to do it for you. You see, if if we're not clear about that, then suddenly what, what happens to us is we, we lose the sense of what our identity is. Our posture gets all wrong. We tend to get prideful or uh, overly discouraged, and we become ineffective. Fourthly, this is our hope. Listen, you know, the, the, the bottom line for us is in all of this dealing with death and all of this needing to be cleansed and stuff like that is that we have someone who died and who overcame death for us. And we have someone who cleans us. We have someone whose blood is better than the blood of any red heifer that that comes to us as the cleansing agent both in and out so that I can have the confidence even when my conscience challenges me even when the devil accuses me that I can go before the throne of God, the judgment seat of God with my head held high because Jesus died for me. That's our hope. I've been reading a book. You know, I read a lot of books. Um, One of the things I'm going to do one of these days when I get organized is... I'm going to give you guys each year a list of the books that I read in a year so you can judge me and also so you can pick some things up that are worth reading. I'm reading a book right now that's a series of letters from a pastor in a fictional town called Granby, Virginia. He's a pastor of a, of a Presbyterian church in this town called, there is no Granby, Virginia. There's Granby High School in Norfolk, right? You went there, didn't you, Ann? Yeah. Did you wrestle? Because that's what they're known for, right? Wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're known for is wrestling. If y'all didn't hear that, don't ask her. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, uh, he, he writes a series. Of, the, the church writes him letters. Uh, and he writes letters back to the church. And uh, the guy who wrote this book is actually a pastor in Charlottesville now. So uh, he's writing to his church because uh, the denomination that they're in wants to come up with something snazzier. Snazzier means cooler, better, more attractive, uh, you know, more appealing than the gospel. 
And frankly, who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, honestly, isn't that our temptation all the time, right? To come up with something to make us more, I don't know, cooler, snazzier, better, right? So he's writing to his congregation. He says, when religious experts suggest an identity upgrade, the whole proposal amounts in my book to nothing more than a grand slogan and a new coat of paint. We could try to re-envision ourselves as a community center or a social advocacy firm if we want to wrench ourselves trying to fit in someone else's clothes. But look, we are the church. We are incompetent in a lot of our endeavors. (laughs) I I, I thought about whether I should include this today because we are the West End of Richmond and you can be a lot of things in Richmond, but you can't be incompetent. Well, this guy's from Charlottesville. <laughs> I'd really like to be competent. Right? But it's the mercy of God that uh, I'm confronted on a daily basis with my incompetence. Otherwise, I wouldn't need a sacrifice. So we're incompetent in a lot of our endeavors, but the Holy Spirit has gifted us to live into a simple and straightforward calling. Our whole story is predicated on the fact that we are big sinners. What is supposed to be unique about us, and that is about the church, is that we are the first to recognize this about ourselves. (laughs) Right? We see the trouble we are in, and we cry out, help me. That is the area in which we lead. (laughs) Right? That's what makes the church the church, is that we, by the power of God, have seen that we need help, and we see the help that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And so this is the message that compels us to love and live in our lives, and our communities, even if it sometimes seems small and mundane, right? Because we have someone who went outside the camp, was rejected, absorbed our sin. It killed him. But the effect of of that killing of him is that he cleanses us and that he broke the power and the connection between sin and death by rising again. We're the church.